This is hell. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to This Is Hell. Usually you'd hear Chuck talking right now, but Chuck is still on vacation. So it is me, Lindsay Gorey, soundboard producer of This Is Hell. And I'm here to play back another uh, interview from the past. Because they're still relevant today. In a lot of new ways, too. So, speaking of which, if Chuck were here, he would typically ask me, what's new with me? But he's not here, so I'm just going to talk to myself and who I presume is listening to uh, about what's new. So, um, yeah, you were just listening to Ebo Taylor, if you were here before the show started. And I was listening to him because he's going to be playing at Talia Hall this Thursday. And my friend Donjma, Donjma Gaskin, plays in uh, Chicago Afrobeat Orchestra and is going to be opening at that show. And that's going to be really cool. I was just yesterday playing, I play the flute, and I was just playing, a, doing an improv thing with Donjma and our friend Betty, Betty Heredia, who has a show on Lumpen Radio. If any of you guys are Lumpen Radio fans, since this show does play on Lumpen. She has a show called Isms. It's really fun. Um, she's an awesome DJ. So that was fun. And also my dad is in town. So it's a pretty crazy week. My dad is in town. I got more information on his convention. It is a National Association of Letter Carriers National Biennial Convention. They do it every two years, but it's been four years because of COVID. It's my dad's first time going. He's been a letter carrier for almost 40 years. He just turned 65, so he could retire. But his union needs him to train people on how to have a good time working for the post office, I guess. Um, Because it's a hard job and they lose people a lot. But anyways... Uh, Chuck once told me that we have a lot of letter carriers who listen to this show, so thanks for what you do, keeping us all connected by mail, paper, the physical world. Yeah, the National Association of Letter Carriers, I, I, I owe my whole life to them, I guess, basically, I mean, um, half my life, I guess, uh, with my dad, um, Always had really good health insurance because of them until I turned 26 and I had no health insurance. I still have no health insurance. I turned 26 last November. So (laughs) I feel like I was spoiled. I was so spoiled by the NALC great union health insurance that I always had growing up, you know. Um, And so now I'm just in a different... I'm in a different ballpark now. I just have to avoid the doctor at all costs. I'm in the preventative medicine world. I can't afford it. I can't afford to go to the doctor. So all this monkeypox stuff has really been on my mind lately. I mean, how could, I just, I, when this stuff is happening to people around us, it's like, Empathetic people can kind of feel it. And anyways, I heard of a case of monkeypox not far from me, somebody I know. Um, 
their company, somebody had monkeypox. And I was really upset to hear that the owner of this company didn't want to give them extra paid time off because they had already used theirs on the times they had COVID. That's the thing to consider is like COVID can impact your immune system. So, you know, <laughs> there might be a connection there to like getting both of them. Um, and I just think that would be a really good time to like pay somebody to stay home when like this random virus we know very little about has only been around for four years is coming to town. So I don't know. I just, they say they are saying that it's unlikely to spread by coworkers. They're saying a lot of things like you probably won't get it at a bar. You probably won't get it at a restaurant. You probably won't get it at a doorknob. But who knows? We don't know anything about monkeypox. And people, I feel like people are like, Lindsay, like, maybe you're a little too scared, like, or too concerned. You're, you're not a man, you're a woman. And they're saying that everybody who's getting monkeypox, like 98%, 98%, they keep saying are men who have sex with men. And so I'm not a man, so I can't be a man who has sex with men. But here's the thing, as I got talking about monkeypox last night about this, and I was like, you know, I want, where could I get the real information from the real monkey people experiencing monkeypox right now? And so I went straight to TikTok, the TikTok app. And honestly, I don't use TikTok that much for somebody my age, I kind of forget about it. Um. But so I went to TikTok, I typed in monkey box into the search bar. That was it. And I just watched the first videos that came up. And I just have to say, I saw many videos from women with monkey pox, female people with monkey pox. Like I could only watch for so long, like maybe 10 minutes of videos um, because these pox are bad. They're bad. I've never seen anything like that on my body and I really don't want to. So we need to rally our healing vibes, those good ones for all the people out there with monkeypox now and who are going to have it in the near future because it's going to spread. I mean, I just, I don't really understand, like, if we have the smallpox vaccine, like, why is it, <laughs> why do we not have it around, you know? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a public health expert so maybe I can find these things out later but I just read last night that Joe Biden has approved um, splitting each vaccine into five parts so using a fifth of the amount of vaccine that's typically given and just injecting it into the skin rather than the fat underneath the skin and that apparently is a way that you can immunize people with this with less you know so they can spread it around more and i have no idea if, like if this you know i don't know i'm not gonna go there in, in terms of <laughs> how effective that sounds it's a little concerning to me knowing they're gonna ration this stuff rather than just have more of it but i don't know me what am i doing somebody like who i i have St. John's wort oil. And I was telling, me and Chuck were talking about St. John's wort oil a few weeks back because he has these nice people from uh, the Wild Fork Farm in uh, Maine. Looks like they're out, way out in Maine, and they send him a lot of nice, nice, nice CBD products. 
when he fell ill and Chuck shared one with me. So, uh, but he also told me about this roller he got from them that had St. John's wort and CBD oil in it. And he was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this stuff. It's a roller. Like I put it on my armpits, like as a joke. <laughs> I was like, Chuck, the roller is so you can put the oil on your body more easily. Like, cause I have a lot of experience pouring oil out of a bottle and it's messy. So an, a roller is nice. And that product, something with CBD and St. John's wort, I would assume is for inflammation. Um, St. John's wort is good for inflammation, but it's a, known to be antiviral. People use it as a herpes treatment. And I think, I'm pretty sure herpes is a pox virus. It's a little different than smallpox or chickenpox or monkeypox, but pretty sure it's a pox virus and people use St. John's wort to manage herpes. So what I'm doing is I'm slathering that on my body as a little force field. So <laughs> an antiviral oil on me if I come in contact with the virus, I mean, seems likely to me it should work pretty well not to get in. Is at least as good as like a fifth of the, you know, small pack, smallpox vaccination. That's got to do, probably do the same thing. And also St. John's wort has like a lot of positive side effects, but I'm just going to say, because I was reading about it the other night on like a science, on the science website. I don't have it in front of me right here. It was... It was a scientific paper about herbs that interact with prescription drugs. So that's the thing. I don't take any prescription drugs because I don't have health insurance. I can't afford them. But if you do take prescription drugs, St. John's Wort is apparently an herb that uh, impacts how much of a medicine is like absorbed by your body. So that's why they say not to take St. John's Wort if you're taking antidepressants um, or other things. Um, so, you know obviously do your own research i don't know what you guys are taking i don't know what you have i'm just talking about this plant that's around every corner and is very easy to turn into oil and that if you have no money and nothing else you could you had to get a jar you could get some oil you could get, get that plant you put the oil on the plant you leave it in the jar for like two weeks to a month and there you go you strain it out you have medicine so uh Stay safe out there with buggy pucks. Like I said, send those healing vibes to everybody who's out there because, I don't know. Yeah, look at TikTok if you want, like, people's first-hand experience, I guess. Anyways, I, I picked out an episode to play back that's pretty related to this topic of pandemic illness. Um, and how, you know, our economy, you know, like, I feel like what they're saying, oh, you won't get it at work, don't worry, you won't do this. It's like what we learn, what they learn from, or we, I don't know, learn from the COVID pandemic is like, all right, how do we not have like an economic freakdown and like shutdown? Um, but, so anyways, this episode on our website uh, is called On Disease, Death, and Labor at the Colonial Pearl Fishery. And it's from July 30th, 2020, so two years ago. And it's an interview with historian Tamara Fernando. And it's, it is 
exploring the intersections of disease, labor, resistance, and empire on the pearl fisheries on the 19th century Gulf of Manar and connects the demands of capitalism and the uses of the human body to the global COVID-19 pandemic. She wrote an article called Death at the Pearl Fishery for the hypocrite reader, who is one of our most loyal and my very favorite responders of the question from hell. Speaking of which, we do have a question from hell this week. And <laughs> thanks, hypocrite reader. You just liked my, I just posted on Twitter and hypocrite reader liked it just a minute ago. <laughs> of course. So this week's question from hell is what ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War Three. What ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War Three? Oh, I got I got a couple of ego trips going on, and um, it doesn't look like there are a ton of new responses to the question from hell. So maybe I'll give you mine later. But if you're listening, you got like half an hour or so while this interview's playing to submit a response for me to read to the question from hell. And hopefully we'll get some more responses for Dan to read tomorrow, because Dan is going to be in the studio tomorrow, also playing back an episode. But I do believe Chuck will be returning on Monday. His two-week vacation is up. Time to get back to work because this is capitalism, this is hell, it never ends. Not yet, anyways. So, without further ado, I will play this interview from 2020, July 20, July 30th, 2020, with Tamara Fernando on pearl fisheries and illness, which I know nothing about, so I hope that we will all learn a lot from this. Is hell. Indian Ocean pearl diving in the late 19th century to fill the British Empire's demand for pearls is a case study in the impact of labor on the human body. So what happens when that physical relationship with capital is suddenly disrupted by, say, a pandemic? Here to guide us through pearl diving, the human body, labor, and capital during a pandemic. Tamara Fernando is the author of the Hypocrite Reader article, Death at the Pearl Fishery, which you can find at hypocritereader.com. Tamara, welcome to This Is Hell. Thanks so much, Chuck. It's great to be here. Tamara is a PhD student at the University of Cambridge researching the marine environmental history of the Indian Ocean with a focus on natural pearl fisheries in the 19th century. Her writing has appeared in Himal, South Asian, Lady Science, and Environmental History Now. You can follow Tamara on Twitter at TamaraFernando3. And thanks to Erica for emailing us from Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan to suggest <laughs> Tamara as a guest. That was really fantastic and probably the greatest email we've ever received on the show. <laughs> so you write that the world underwater is different from that of the air. This would have been clear to the unnamed pearl diver in 1858 who found himself submerged five meters below the waves in the Gulf of Mamar. This is in the Indian Ocean between India and Sri Lanka. His diving stone emitted a soft thud as it made contact with the sea floor. Splashes echoed around him as a thousand thousand other men and boys plunged into the water. The currents did not throw up sand to cloud his vision. Uh, that day, and the high noon light was strong, he pried 
off 15 oysters, each one firmly crusted to a rugged coralline mass. Soon, his lungs started to burn, feeling lightheaded. He took hold of his basket and kicked up off back to the surface. How hard was this work? And what do you mean by a diving stone? Because before we even get into the other deeper aspects of this, I, I want people to have an understanding of how this, what this diving was like. How hard was this work and what is a diving stone? Right. Good, good question, Chuck. So this is, to be clear, this is natural pearling. So if you were to buy a pearl today, it would be the result of what we call culturing. So, um, you introduce a little bead and some mantle tissue into an oyster to produce pearls to order, which is not how things worked before the 1920s. So this is, you know, you're dredging up oysters randomly in the hope that one in 40 of them has a pearl inside. Um, and this is free diving. So there's no equipment, there's no breathing tank or anything. These are men who are working as deep as 16 meters underwater. So a diving stone could, you know, weigh 10 to 15 pounds. And what men would do is they would rope the stone around their feet um, to expedite the descent to the bottom of the ocean and then try to grab up as many oysters as they could before coming back up to the surface. Um, and we know, I mean, there are still communities that practice free diving in this region. I think there's a difference between the way it's practiced now and this sort of industrial colonial plantation that's set up that I talk about in the paper because we have medical records from the fishery which record a whole series of, you know, adverse effects related to this work. So ruptured eardrums, nosebleeds, death from drowning, decompressing too fast, um, even incidents of men who are hit with other men's diving stones while they're underwater or coming up. So it really, really is arduous work. Um, and work that's deeply tied to your income and livelihood, because if you didn't finish fish enough oysters, then you weren't going to have anything to sell to make a living at the end of the day. And you talk about the other forms of life in the ocean that can have a, an, a horrible effect on the human body, right? The bulk of the ocean's biomass in the form of minute plankton, crabs, copepods, diatoms, and uh, I'm going to get these all wrong. Pheromon and fiera went unnoticed. Amongst these life forms were the larvae of parasitic tapeworms, which invaded and infected oysters, stimulating pearl production. Present also were vast numbers of another bacterium that was attached for now to crustacean hosts, but capable of moving from aquatic reservoirs to human insides. Of the impacts of the latter, however, the diver was soon to become all too aware. What would happen to the divers once these crustaceans got into their system? Right. So I think one thing that's important to establish here is that the nature of work or labor at the pearl fishery um, makes the impact of epidemic diseases like cholera, in this case, much, much worse. Um, so the pearl fishery is a seasonal event. You could have up to 15,000, 15 to 30,000 people who'd be housed in a camp that the British Empire would construct. And this is a makeshift and temporary camp that's crowding vast numbers of people together in conditions that could be deeply unsanitary. Um, and in, in essence, what this means is that once an epidemic takes hold, it spreads very quickly through the camp. And I guess what I was intrigued by was all these stories of divers saying, look, People are falling sick. We know that there are men dying at the camp. We don't want to work anymore. And um, imperial or colonial officials saying, 
um, trying to stop these types of negotiations and saying you still have to go out to sea um, to work to dive for pearls. And I, I guess I was really intrigued by how cholera or disease became a bargaining chip at the fishery and allowed divers to also stop work or, you know, find solidarity across different groups. Because the crustaceans put them at risk more to death when they did uh, come in contact with cholera. And you write that the recent rapid proliferation of the coronavirus amongst humans has thrown our notions of work into disarray. But this is not a new reality. Microbial cultures circulating in the water or the air, passing from intermediate hosts to humans through gastric barriers into intestines, lungs, blood, have long inflected labor relations. This leftist toolkit of strikes, petitions, mass movements, and city politics may tempt us to take the body for granted as the corporeal is swallowed up by amorphous forces of anti-capitalist resistance, trade unionism, or class consciousness. COVID-19, however, calls for a strengthened attentiveness to the body, which I find fascinating. Many guests on our show have pointed out how the pandemic has revealed fissures within capitalism. If it does, how can a strengthened attentiveness to the body possibly even challenge capitalism? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess it allows, well, in the in the case of the pearl fishery, it really allows for um, labor relations to be renegotiated. So in events where capital is willing to use force and violence to compel people to produce for them, um, this sort of attention to the body and to sickness really allows those who are working to say, um, we're not going to work. And that's, you know, in the case of the pearl fishery, also a very diverse um, labor force. So you have Muslim divers, Catholic divers, divers who are speaking multiple different languages, But when an epidemic takes hold and the whole fishery camp or the whole body of workers is really imperiled, it seems like that that really is an opportunity for workers to band together and say these conditions are unacceptable and we aren't going to um, to continue to work under these conditions. You point out that the until the dominance of pearl culturing technology in the 1930s, as you were discussing earlier, thousands of men in tropical waters worked as pearl divers in order for glass-fronted New York and Parisian jewelry houses to sell strands of pearls. Divers worked without recourse to urban politics or union protections or indeed any kind of labor law. In the Gulf of Manar, a shallow strip of water between South India and Ceylon that produced a quarter of the world's p- pearls, British colonial authorities rigorously controlled and surveilled the bodies of the divers they employed and did not hesitate to use force to extract labor. How controlled and surveilled were the lives of pearl divers in the Gulf of Mana by the British? Could, could this could be described as, well, not necessarily slavery, but slave-like conditions? I, I think in part, yes, Jack. I mean, there's definitely an element of coercion and violence. I also don't want to gloss the fact that, you know, these are communities who are very proud of their, you know, seaworthiness and their ability to dive. And there's there's a whole world outside of this controlling colonial gaze of folklore and legends and stories about the sea and the underwater. So I don't I don't want to ignore that. Um, I think what's distinct here is that the 
British colonial state really wants to extract as much profit as possible. So when divers say, look, we're exhausted, we've been working straight for two weeks, let us go home. The answer is, you can't go home because we have another week of fishing to complete. So I think that's what makes this, um, I think that's what makes this different or distinct. I also found really fascinating this idea, as you were mentioning earlier, the idea of illness and epidemic disease as a possible site of resistance, the common ground of disease that people might be sharing. How powerful can the political power of the common ground of disease be amongst those who are in the labor class? That's a good question, Chuck. I mean, I think the the intervention is where is solidarity really made cross-cutting? So we know, for instance, in the fishery, oftentimes the first people to fall sick would be um, workers who were hired as sort of sanitary crews by the colonial state. So instead of, you know, accepting any responsibility for the architecture of the camp and the conditions of labor, which might have worsened the impact of disease, what um, the British would do is they would essentially enlist crews of sanitary workers, dis, you know, disposable human bodies in a sense, to clean the camp, um, to make it less likely that disease would spread. And these were often the first men, women, and sometimes children who would die at the fishery. So we know that young young children who are forced to clean the streets of human waste or um, old women who were shopkeepers selling bananas in the bazaar would be found dead inside of their huts. Um, so I think there there is a question about you know whose lives are are dispensable and who falls ill first, and really whether that's enough to galvanize solidarity across different castes and languages and regional groups. I think is the question really to ask. So instead of addressing the systemic issues, they only apply the immediate fix, the Band-Aid, which again sounds very much like how we are responding to the pandemic here in the United States or to racialized police matter, violence for that matter. Why does capitalism or I know this is a pretty big picture question, but why does <laughs> capitalism or imperialism ignore the long term solution instead only focus on the patch that I, you know, that keeps the ship floating. Why do they, Why is there just the focus on the cleanup crews instead of the focus on the environment in which creates a disease? Mm. I mean, I think it's worth saying, and this is something you know a lot of guests on your show talk about that there is imperialism, all capitalism are sustained by ideologies, right? Um, in this case, the labor of diving is deeply, deeply racialized. Um, this is when sort of nascent race theory is really taking hold. So the British have a whole series of theories about certain racial groups being closer to nature or to the sea. You know, Tamils are amphibious and they're dexterous with their toes in a way that, you know, Europeans would never be able to pick up such tiny pearls with their fat, clumsy white fingers or... Um, it's really black skin that repels sharks and allows these men to work underwater. So I think, you know, maybe part of the, the way to answer this question is to look at what sort of ideologies underlie capitalism or imperialism to, to allow for this kind of quick fix solution to be applied without really having to think too hard about it. So do you think the physical effects then of labor drove 
racism, the physical effects of labor on the human body drove or underlined or reinforced racism amongst whites? I think I think in part that's definitely fair to say. I think even even when it comes to the impact of disease, I mean this is you know what European officials will call Asiatic cholera and even after these so-called advances in bacteriology which replace a certain way of thinking about the tropics as unhealthy, diseased, filthy, backward places um, where just the air is enough to generate tropical fever or tropical disease. Then there's a sort of revolution which says, no, you know, this is about microbes and microbes can be carried in human hosts. But I think, you know, even after this so-called Pasteurian revolution, there is a, a recourse to dirty, filthy people bringing disease, which really, I think, ignores a lot of the ways in which colonialism creates the conditions that make um, the spread of disease and these types of vulnerabilities possible. Why erase labor's impact on the human body and replace it with a racial theory? I mean, what is the point of ignoring the impact of capital on the human body and instead attributing it to some fictionalized racial difference. How does that help imperialism? I mean, it's cheap is a kind of crude and short answer. Um, it, it was just much, much, much less expensive for the state to rely on South Indian freedivers than it was to, say, rely on European men who they have very occasionally have there's a, a man named Mr. Peachy in the 1860s and 1870s who's diving in Ceylon, and he's paid what, you know, 10 boats would be paid together um, for two days of labor in a diving suit with a tank of oxygen to do the same work. So um, it just really, you know, balances out the imperial ledger much better to, to rely on this kind of work. This would, when there's, well, you write that without divers, obviously, there would be no pearl. So this would seem to give a great deal of leverage to divers. However, to what extent does that kind of physical labor lead to far more harsh control and surveillance of divers' bodies? When physical labor has that kind of leverage, when they are the linchpin to the business model, how much does that increase the brutality and cruelty that would be targeted at them? Good question, Chuck. I mean, it's a difficult one to answer because in some ways it goes both ways. So yes, you have a workforce that's poorly remunerated, that's the victim of, you know, police police brutality, we can call it at this point. Um, but divers also do have the possibility to withdraw their bodies from the interaction. So to come to the pearl fishery, because these are all maritime communities, they derive on their own boats over sea, which makes them very, very dangerously mobile. So there are several instances in the archive where colonial officials will wake up and find that divers have stolen away to their boats in the night and just um, sailed back to their towns because they just withdrew completely. Um, other times divers would run away either into the forest or further up north to try to get a ferry back home to the towns that they came from. So that there was potential in the body also just to withdraw labor. Um, but it's also, I mean, it's definitely a site of surveillance. One of the big 
concerns for imperial authorities was that they would make um, a they would turn over less profit because divers would steal pearls. And a lot of these concerns were also located in the body. So for instance, they, they were convinced that divers would hide pearls um, within their gums, even inside their eyelids and their nasal cavities. Um, and there's, you know, extreme amounts of violence. There's even records in the archive of you know, enemas being forcibly administered because they believed the divers would have swallowed pearls um, in order that they wouldn't be, you know, sold by the state so that the colonial state would make a profit. And you point out that the advances in uh, bacteriology also draw, drew the state much more forcefully into divers' private lives. Living quarters were inspected twice a day during the cholera epidemic by a team of medical staff. Persons working in the camp as shopkeepers, servants, cooks, or sanitary staff might be forced to undergo random checks and ferried off to a quarantine hospital with no advance warning, separated from family and peers. So to what extent is this kind of treatment through surveillance rooted in imperialism? I think it's fairly standard in terms of the mechanics of the state. I guess what's interesting is that disease and colonial medicine really ushers in and makes possible a lot of these functions historically. So, you know, greater attention to migration, the fact that um, people aren't going to come and go freely in boats from the coast anymore. We're actually going to keep tabs on every vessel that comes. So you're sort of seeing the hardening up of national boundaries and additional modes of census taking and tabulating who's arrived and who's left. So I think the, the more interesting story is that um, these sort of medical histories or histories of colonial medicine are deeply embedded with the way state power as we know it now develops. And you talk about how immigrants would bring disease and people who don't look like you would bring disease. To what degree is disease the driving force of racism, of anti-immigrant beliefs, not only here in the West, but everywhere? To what extent is racism and anti-immigration all founded from disease? I think it has a lot to do with it. Um, what what I would point out here, though, is that um, the colonial state is very willing to suspend its so-called humanitarian concern with disease if it looks like they aren't going to turn a profit. So even in years where, um, say, authorities in Ceylon are very worried about cholera outbreaks, they're determined to get divers to come. So they'll actually... Um, they'll send notice to towns in South, South India and they'll say, well, actually, we're willing to let 300 men travel free of any kind of immigration check as long as they promise to dive at the pearl fishery. Um, so sort of commercial or capital exigencies are enough of an excuse to kind of forget about this so-called concern with humanitarian prevention of the spread of disease. And you're right that, as many historians of medicine have pointed out, imperialism often posited the eradication of disease in the tropics and the civilizing mission as coterminous, coterminous. That is, having the same boundaries of or extent in space, time, or meaning. Uh, the promise of imperialism was civilizing and eradication of disease. So how did imperialism end up doing 
the opposite of both. Was that promise just a con, a scam to get popular support for what is a brutal, cruel, and racist project? I think in large part, yes, just and certainly to start with. I mean, keep in mind that this kind of medicine, particularly in places like India and Ceylon, is initially, I mean, the first hospitals that are set up are exclusively for um, Europeans, so white soldiers, settlers and sailors, particularly because they're worried about the fact that British military presence is falling in ill and it means that empire is not going to be able to survive or be sustained in, quote unquote, the tropics. Um, and it sort of, you know, grows out from something that's purely put in place to uphold military presence. It grows out to to be concerned with local populations because they're worried once again that epidemics that are affecting indigenous people will then be transferred on to colonial troops and it'll make the military presence weak. So that's really the sort of origin story for medicine or hospitals um, in, in places like Ceylon. So um, the sort of the be- benevolence of this is a kind of positive fiction that's tagged on much later. And you, uh, you also point out that many were subject to Western medical treatment even when they were, they asked for indigenous medicine, such as Ayurvedic, sorry, Siddha and, Ayurvedic. Yeah, I'm always getting these words wrong. Or Yanani <laughs> treatments. Okay. Standards of adequate sanitation were enforced with the same rigor of policing labor to extract maximum profit. Western medicine imposed through force, erasing local practices, all in the name of profit. How much is the way Western science approached uh, the the people that they were colonizing an expression of colonialism because i think people just see it as science as something that is objective as something that doesn't have any kind of political project to it so so is western was western mm-hmm. science approached as an expression of uh, colonialism as well absolutely chuck i mean you you're 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 completely right and i i think you know medicine science these two are sort of really going hand in hand at the moment we're talking about. And it's also not to say, I think sometimes um, those of us historians who've read too much Foucault, there is a tendency to say, well, you know, European empires went in and they destroyed everything. um, And it, it was just a story of oppression. And I don't think that story is really true either, because there is incorporation of a lot of pre existing traditions of um, care or, or medicine, you know, as you mentioned, Ayurveda, Siddha, or Yunani medicine. Um, I think what's clearer here, or the story I talk about, is of a, a particular Muslim diver who um, was taken away to this Western quarantine hospital um, and wanted Islamic rites of care or burial. So, wanted him to be attended by a priest. And he dies in the hospital and his body is disposed of by colonial authorities. And then what happens is all the men from his village sort of group together and say, um, you know, this is wrong. We don't want our um, our colleagues to be to be treated in this way. And this becomes a sort of big debate around labor and whether they're going to stay and work at the pearl fishery or whether the entire community of 300 divers is going to desert the fishery because you know, the wishes of the community weren't upheld. 
And the that brings me to the impact of cultural differences revealed by the response of death due to a pandemic becoming a tipping point in a reconsideration of labor relations. Do you see something similar happen, happening today? Are we reconsidering labor relations because of cultural or more to the point race and class differences revealed by the pandemic? I mean, I think the fissures certainly show up much more clearly in terms of which groups are vulnerable, which groups um, the state is willing to consider dispensable or put on the front line. I, I, I guess the question really is then what response do we formulate in relation to that? And is this really a moment for cross-cutting solidarity or a moment where we, you know, sacrifice the most vulnerable members of society. The divers were what we call today essential workers. So why were, at least for the empire, they were. So why were the divers not protected from the disease? If the industry's biggest asset, most important asset is physical labor, why not do everything necessary to make certain that labor is sustainable rather than take risks at the long-term sustainability of your controlled labor. I don't understand why they would take so many risks with the workers. Were they just that, I hate to use this word, disposable because there was an abundant supply of potential divers? I think that's partly true. Um, I think they're thinking of what the political consequences would be. Keep in mind another thing that makes divers in Ceylon vulnerable is um, the fact that they're migrant divers. So there's going to be less political clout in the capital, in Colombo, um, compared to groups that are permanently settled on the island. So I think that makes them a whole lot more vulnerable. And sort of the politics around labor plays out differently because they're a migrant um, labor force. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I would, I would have to say that it has something to do with um, what the political consequences are for the state and whether they think they can get away with it or not. Post-pandemic, do you believe there will be increased pressure today on non-healthcare labor that was determined to be essential to be eliminated, to be potentially automated? Because what I kept thinking about in your book was how uh, the pandemic reveals reveals the capital, the labor they need to eliminate, and that is essential workers. Does a pandemic reveal the most essential workers? And does that make those most that most essential labor a target of capital to be eliminated and replaced in some way? It's a good question. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on this to answer, Chuck. As far as I've seen, I mean, it's sort of thus far, at least in the short term, has doubled down. Um, where I'm based in the UK or across Europe, it's kind of led to, um, you know, a, a, a reliance on agricultural work and incentives for more workers from, say, Romania to be brought in to ensure that people have crops on the table to eat. Um, of course, whether one is, again, guaranteeing protections and security and safety for those workers, I think, is is up for debate. And then, again, how we generate sort of political will behind protecting these communities. Um, and, and, and I think balancing, balancing 
livelihoods. I mean, divers, in some instances, even when there is an outbreak of cholera, divers want to continue to dive because this is how they make their their living. Um, so really also thinking about, you know, what's what is going to replace um you know, how, how these communities are going to put food on the table at the end of the day. So how devastating was the synthetic pearl to divers, How uh, to their economic well-being, their financial well-being, their quality of life? Um, I mean, the, the industry dies out completely. There's sort of cottage industry attempts to restart um, cultured pearling and um, there, there are still communities of free divers, but um, not in any regular or routine way. And I think for small scale people who work in small scale fisheries, I know particularly now with the pandemic and COVID, um, because seafood often has to be fresh, a lot of these fishing communities are really, really devastated um, because they're, they're unable to go to market and to sell their wares and they're very reliant on people coming every day to buy you know, fresh fish to take home because they they would often transition into other occupations like fishing. Um, so yeah, it's they've been very very hard hit currently. One last question for you, Tamara. Tamara Fernando is the author of the Hypocrite Reader article, Death at the Pearl Fishery, which is fascinating, and you should all check it out at hypocritereader.com. Tamara is a Ph.D. student at the University of Cambridge researching the marine environmental history of the Indian Ocean. You can find her writing at places like Himal, South Asian, Lady Science, and Environmental History Now. You can follow Tamara on Twitter at TamaraFernando3. And again, thanks to Erica for emailing us from Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, and suggesting Tamara as a guest on the show. One last question for you tomorrow and as we do with all of our guests it's the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate the response this one isn't all that hellish though how can <laughs> recognizing the impact of labor on our physical bodies how can that be revolutionary how can that be transformative how can that be a different way of understanding the world around us that could bring about revolution I think what it does more than anything is that it forces us to read bodies in the context of our environments more broadly. And I think that connects a lot of the things we've been talking about, race, class, labor, economies, um, with the climate crisis and what it means to live in a, you know, a world on the on the brink of climate crisis, to really think that you know, we are not atomized workers um, producing. We are very much porous to our environments and to the world we live in. And maybe that would allow for us to, to bridge a lot of common strands in order for some kind of, you know, really cross-cutting solidarity or revolution. Tamara, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. This really is fascinating work, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, more of your writing in the future, and we would love to have you back on the show because this is a fascinating topic. Thank you so much for being on the show this week. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Welcome back. This is Lindsay. Because Chuck is still on vacation. And you just listened to Tamara Fernando 
talked to Chuck back in July of 2020 on disease, death, and labor at the Colonial Pearl Fishery. So, yeah, ever since the pandemic, uh, we have been thinking about how disease impacts capitalism and vice versa. So, while I was listening to that episode, I was doing a little bit of of uh, multitasking and going back to one person who I found on TikTok last night. I was talking about before that episode um, what I've been learning about, what I've been thinking about monkeypox, and Tamara just point to just touched on something at the very end there in the question from hell and said, I quote, we are very porous to our environments. And that is um, pretty topical for, uh, you know, a pox virus, a skin illness. And I think that's one of the reasons why, like, this is, the news of this has been impacting me in a very emotional way. Like, I'm really interested in skin. I make my own soap and things like that. And it's just, I can, I can, t- like, these videos, if you go and look at people on TikTok, I mean, I don't think they're just doing it to get views. I think I, a lot of these videos are very emotional, crying about finding out, you know, you have monkeypox and dealing with it. Um, but I, there's one girl at Kyrie Fluffins, K R K, sorry, at K Y R I E F L U F F I N S, at Kyrie Fluffins. She has a few videos about her experience with monkeypox, and I was just watching this one from July 17th on contract tracing. She didn't know how she got monkeypox, it wasn't from a sexual exposure. And she talks about her interview with the contract tracers and realizing it could have come from the massages she got. It could have come from the towels at the pool at the hotel. She was on a road trip. It could have come from any one of the many beds that she was laying in. Maybe the maybe the hotel didn't clean it that night. So I'm just trying to say, like, I'm super suspicious about, you know... <laughs> the government and media trying to downplay this and tap into people's internalized homophobia and make you think you don't have something to worry about. Um, this has been spreading since May and now we're in August. I, we're almost up to 10,000 recorded cases. So um, I'm going to start taking it seriously and I hope other people do too. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that I'll let's go to the question from hell now. I've got a few minutes left here. Uh, so this week's question from hell. What ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War Three? <laughs> what ego trip are you going on that could trigger World War Three? I still only have a couple responses here. So my initial response to this question, while well, one ego trip, I'm like the only woman producing on the show right now so the second anyone does any kind of I perceive any kind of microaggression I'm ego tripping on that <laughs> the only one <laughs> I don't want to be if anybody <laughs> if any women want to come um, help produce on here anyways I also <laughs> my other ego trip which is a confusing one is that I I bring it up on the show from time to time I'm a twin I've 
didn't think about it for a long time. I didn't think about it that much for most of my life. And um, six months ago, I was like, hey, I have a degree in sociology. This twin thing's kind of interesting about my life. But that's my ego trip always. I'm different. <laughs> I was born with somebody else who looks like me. Um, I one time was talking to um, a twin friend of mine from high school, some twi other twins that I know about something that had to do with being twins. And um, they said it, not me. They said twins are superior. <laughs> twin supremacy they were advocating for. And I don't advocate for that, but it is something to think about. This. <laughs> I mean, the way people mysticize and fetishize, I mean, I'll, I'll take the kind of, like, make me think I'm special, but I don't really don't like the creepy aspects of it, <laughs> which there are a lot. So, uh, <laughs> you know, people being like, oh, you're like those twins from The Shining, right? All creepy and stuff. And <laughs> Anyways, what are your guys' responses to the question from hell? What ego trip are you going on? That could trigger World War Three. Um, Kim G is pushing all the buttons, pushing all the buttons. So her ego could trip over anything, I guess. Pushing other people's buttons. Master button pusher, Kim G. That might be my only response. Let me check if anybody answered on Twitter. I just posted it a bit ago. No, I no response. I got one retweet and I got five likes. But none of y'all gave me an answer. So, please, 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 please get your questions in for Dan Hill tomorrow, who's going to be in the studio. I even have the email right here that says he's going to be playing an interview with Norman Finkelstein. So, yeah, he's going to play an interview or two, depending on how many he can squeeze in. So please, 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 please get those question from hell responses in. So Dan has something to read on air tomorrow, but I guess since he is he is on our last day of the week, he gets to choose the winner. So uh, that's always fun. Okay, well, it was a pleasure speaking with you all today. Well, not I really. I'm alone in the studio, but it was a pleasure. So, I hope you had some pleasure, too, in this never-ending hell reality. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.